Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and I am joined uh, via Zoom today uh, again. I have Sue Grimmett in the office. Uh, hello, Sue. Hi, Dom and everyone. Really good to be here. And uh, I have Peter Cat with us as well. Hey, Peter. Good morning. Looking forward to this. And uh, look, we, we are very excited. Uh, we are moments away from welcoming Dr. Willie James Jennings to the podcast. Um, however, uh, before we do, we actually have an extra co-host with us today. We have drafted in reinforcements today um, for this particular conversation. Uh, we have Dr. Peter Klein joining us uh, on the Zoom chat. Um, Peter, thank you so much for, for dropping by. Just for those who may not have come across you, can you give a little bit of background as to what you do and, and your connection to, uh, to the work of Dr. Jennings? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Dom. So my name is Peter, and I'm the academic dean and lecturer in systematic theology at St. Francis College here in Brisbane, which is the theological college for the Anglican Diocese. And, and my connection to Willie Jennings' work is that I've been reading it for years, and I regard uh, Willie as one of the most important living theological voices that we have today. And he raises and asks sort of fundamental, really important questions that I think we need to be wrestling with, not only as theological educators, but as churches, as Christians, as people of faith, just as human beings. I think his work um, touches on a number of vital issues. So, um, and I use it in my own teaching and in my own research and writing. So I think he's really, really important. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we are very happy to have you with us here today, Peter. And uh, with that, we will welcome our guest today, who is just joining us in the Zoom chat as well. Dr. Willie James Jennings is a theologian, academic, and author of, I think it would be fair to say, a few profoundly game-changing books, um, most recently, After Whiteness and Education in Belonging. Uh, Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for making time to join us. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, look, it is it is a real honor. And I feel like we should almost put a warning at the start of this podcast that, uh, you know, over the next hour, you might reevaluate parts of your life and things you've taken for granted that you never have before, because that, that seems to be what your work does to people, Willie. They, they come across um, a book of yours and then suddenly realize there's so many parts of their own life that, you know, places they've put value, things they've desired, things they've hoped for that they've never really maybe realized um, were given to them by an unhealthy system. Um, it's fair to say. Do you, do you find, before we get into the work, do you find that people sometimes come up and go, you've, you've ruined my whole life, Willie? <laughs> yeah, I, I always get a great joy out of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, um, look, we, we, we'll explore um, a lot of that in the, I guess, in the hour or so ahead. Um, but I did mention your, your latest book is After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging. And, and that idea of whiteness, I suppose, is pretty central to uh, to your work and to the conversation we're going to have. I'm just wondering, how do you, you know, when, when someone asks you about it who's never come across your work before, how do you introduce the idea of, of whiteness to them? That's a great question. And it's always a challenge for people uh, to understand what I'm talking about, especially people who identify as white, because... The, the question itself is often, I, I, what's behind the question is, do you hate me? <laughs> <laughs> and my answer is, no, not at all, not at all. So what I try to do is to help people understand two things. One, that there was a time when people didn't actually see themselves as white. And so that first historical fact is important to put on the table. And then the other thing I want to say to them is that Whiteness is not biology or phenotype. Whiteness is a way of being in the world. Mm. And so when you say these two things to people, 
sometimes it'll allow them to kind of rest a little bit and say, okay, well, maybe he doesn't hate me. <laughs> and so what I try to do is to define for them, I have a, a pretty basic definition I give to people. And it's, it starts with what I just said a moment ago. Whiteness is a way of being in the world and a way of seeing the world at the same time. Whiteness is a way of imagining the world, understanding the world, organizing the world. And whiteness is having the power to order the world by that organizational imagination. And so that is very helpful uh, for people to see it that way mm. and to understand that it's not phenotype, it's not biology, it's not culture, and it's certainly not a part of God's creation. It is this very different thing, a historical reconstruction of identity. And that sometimes helps people to start to imagine that there might be a way of understanding themselves apart from this thing called racial identity and specifically apart from this thing called whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I know um, you, your work does set up the idea that, that the, I guess the water we're all swimming in, in, in Western civilization and the language you use is a, a, the deformed building project, I suppose, of, of Western civilization that um, the, what we have been raised in, you know, taught to value, taught to want, taught to hope for the way we've been taught to think and group ourselves together was not necessarily the organic way that things would have just emerged, but is deeply embedded in this, this system of whiteness in this deformed building project. Um, for those who this might be, a, I guess, a new idea for how, how did this come about? Well, you know, it was the it was the coming together of a perfect storm. And it had these the, the following elements. Uh, the first crucial element, it had to do with the way Christians in what we would call the medieval world saw themselves as they were coming to what we call uh, now historic, in a kind of historically sloppy way, the new worlds. And as they came to the new worlds, they saw themselves as at the very center of what God was doing in the world. And the reason they came to this is because they understood that they had replaced the Jewish people as at the very center of God's story, God's reality, God's history in the world. And that sixth sense of centeredness is at the very beginning. But layer on top of that, the reality of coming to places heretofore unknown to them and realizing that they are there in incredible power, that they have power that they have not imagined. And layer on top of that, the sense that they are there by God's providential wish in order to reorganize and organize this world. And in that regard, to also bring it into salvation, bring it into maturity. And then one other layer we put on top of that, this sheer thing called greed, <laughs> in which they believed that because they were there to do God's will and God had brought them there, God had said, it's all yours. Take it. You can, it's, I'm giving it to you. You do what I want, and I'm giving you this. And so the, the reality of this unbelievable power this reality of a sense of responsibility, this, this reality of greed. And then let's add one other layer on top of that. And that is the, the, the wish to shape this world 
in a way that is understandable and controllable for them. One of the things we, we, we fail to recognize is for so many people of the old world, when they came to the new worlds, whether we're talking about the Portuguese or the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, the British, they were overwhelmed by the sheer majesty, beauty, uh, incomprehensibility, variety, diversity of not only the peoples, but their languages, not only the languages, but the landscapes, not only the landscapes, but the animals and the minerals, all of this was absolutely overwhelming. And so the desire to understand it and to control it, two sides of the same coin, which meant that the idea to know a thing and to possess a thing formed as two sides of the same coin. So when you layer that, when you layer that diabolical sandwich together, you get what we have. You get a world shaped in what becomes the racial condition and a world understood as things given by God to God's people. Yeah. And that is at the heart of all the mess. <laughs> <laughs> in the world <laughs> or in the world created by the colonial history yeah yeah that's that that's such a helpful i think um context to to for the, for the conversation we're about to have and i think the really important thing that you you touch on there is a lot of people probably uh don't understand the central role that christianity itself has played in the formation of of I guess what you call whiteness off this deformed building project. Uh, I know um, any time that, that that is mentioned that Christianity played a role in part of the problem we've got ourselves in today, uh, a lot of people do get their back up sometimes and, and think, you know, at the very least, may, maybe maybe we could have done more to stop it, but we certainly didn't start creating it. But as you touched on there, it was actually hand in hand. It was the very essence of the creation of this deformed building project. Absolutely. there is There is a... Christian architecture to mm -hmm. modern racial reasoning. And this is a hard thing for people to understand. There's a Christian architecture to modern racial reasoning. But let's also say this. There's a racial architecture inside of modern Christian existence. And if we, don't, we, if we hold both those things together, then people can see it's not simply that we flooded something with water. We actually are in that water. And so it's it's challenging for people to get their minds around that they are both inside a legacy of agents doing things, but they're also inside a structure that creates a sense of agency. And that, for so many people, is like, oh, that's that, that hurts my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, it's it is interesting. I think um something that that blew me away um in York. One of the first parts that made me realize I was in for a journey um as I'm coming as I'm working my way through um what you've written, Willie, was the uh the idea of Christianity losing a sense of being Gentiles early on in the you know in the first few centuries and and what that ultimately meant was that we lost the ability to join. We lost the ability to join with um you know people who we met who had different backgrounds and instead developed this whole ideology I suppose of superseding of of coming in and replacing. Um why did why do you think that did happen and because it it seems to me such an interesting point that that almost was the essence the genesis of everything that went wrong afterwards was that loss of a sense of being gentiles. 
it, 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 was the, it was part of the unprecedented. And we see this in the, in the New Testament, that the, 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 what God is up to uh, puts a profound question mark on the table for everybody, for Jew and Gentile alike. So in Acts 10, God is doing something that Peter and the other followers of Jesus, who thought they understood Jesus pretty well by then, <laughs> now this is something that they couldn't get their minds around. What exactly are you doing, God? And then when Gentiles are seen as now being brought into the reality of life with the God made known in Jesus, Gentile life itself now has a profound question mark. We now have to think our life in relationship to this particular people. And for so many people, very early, that's a crisis because all of a sudden, now the very orientation of your life is as in a sense as guests brought into someone else's home as those who enter someone else's story and then have to think your story inside someone else's story so very early we don't you know we can't really pin this down because first of all most historians and biblical scholars weren't attuned to these matters but we really can't pin this down because we're not sure when this began, but all we know is that by the time we're hitting the second century, early third century, Christians are now calling themselves the people of God and calling Jewish people Gentiles, heathens, pagans, people who don't understand the God of the, the God of the creation, who don't understand who God is. Christians are, are, have already now, in a strange way, placed themselves at the center. And from that, a kind of, think of it as, a, as, as Christianity being formed with a, with a necessary enzyme. And what is that? So um, the, the womanist theologian, uh, M. Sean Copeland, has this phrase where she talks about, it's called, she calls it a thinking margin. What does it mean to be a thinking margin? And so as Christians... <laughs> We were formed to think from the margins, to see, to understand life as guest, entering in, adapting, changing, opening ourselves, being malleable as a fundamental reality of what it means to be a Christian, because we're entering into another people's story. And so this reality of entering in is now, in a sense, fundamental to our DNA. But if we understand ourselves as the host, that you have to enter into, that you have to adapt to us, that you have to change, that you have to become us. That's fundamental to what it means to form Christian identity. Then we've already reversed it. And so the, 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 deep, the deep disposition, habit of mind and body that should have been ours, that by the way, profoundly not only echoes, but participates in the incarnate life of God is not there. The God who became flesh, entering into the full reality of the human, into the reality of learning, that the way we are supposed to pick up on that is not there. And so a Christianity formed without its most powerful, and compelling skill at the very heart. What would it mean to be able to enter into the lives of another people? 
not trying to take those lives over, but to enter fully and inside the lives of other peoples that we have joined to give witness, to perform, to exhibit love of God found in Jesus and love of those people. What would it have meant to be that that is the fundamental character of a Christian, one who always shows this unbelievable, sophisticated ability to enter places, intercultures, never to destroy, never to take them over, but the expansion of our identity. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is accepted, everything is um, taken in, but it means that a new reality of love and of joining becomes the site of working out the complicated reality of being together. That, that's the direction that's there in the New Testament. And somehow early in, as they say, early in the game, we dropped the ball. Hmm. Well, at least I, the consequences weren't too disastrous, though. So that's what matters. We, it's not like we went and screwed up the entire planet as a result of it. Hey, Willie. <laughs> I might jump in here, Dom, at this yes, point and just jump in. ask a question or make a, So I, in terms of this, um, you know, no longer being able to see ourselves or enact ourselves as a thinking margin, just to bring it into where we are right now in Australia, 21st century Australia, and most of us here are Anglicans in 21st century Australia. And I think, I think one of the central challenges that I think Anglicans say in this country face is we, our denomination, like we're, we are the facilitating denomination of the empire, you might say, right? I mean, you know, Australia is a colonial outpost of, you know, the British empire. And the Anglican church is the church of that colonial outpost. And we have that history of being the facilitating mm -hmm. community, right, of Australia, of a large section of Australian Christianity, right? And Australia still, you know, very much thinks of itself in terms of its mm -hmm. British colonial past and mm -hmm. the Anglican church. And of course, like all Western, you know, contexts, the church is in decline here. Numbers yeah. are decreasing. Um, you know, we're panicking about that. Um, yeah. But I think one of the central challenges, even for us, particularly Anglicans, is we we just don't know how to not think of ourselves as that facilitating context. We have we what would it mean for Anglicans in Australia to become a thinking margin? And in some ways we are marginal just because of the where, you know, Western society and secularism has gone. But I don't know how we I'm not sure we know we, we know how to really enter into that. Um, given our kind of historical position as even Anglicans specifically. So, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a challenge. And I, I dare say for the, the Anglican communion in the UK, I've spoken to many people about this and in, and in the Episcopal communion in the States, the similar struggle. Mm. But I, what's, what's at the heart is where we, where we want to engage the struggle. And where we want to engage the struggle is at the site of formation, right? Um, as you all know, one of the most compelling and complicated and tragic realities of um, theological formation within the Anglican communion is precisely the way in which formation inside is a formation that's also deeply inside whiteness. It's deeply inside the formation of a certain kind of self-sufficient white masculinist form, intellectual form. And so the, the, the question is, how do we, how do we engage 
a struggle at those sites of formation. It takes incredible energy to sustain whiteness. But it's energy that can be, in a sense, woven into the fabric of one's endeavor to become that then has to be unwoven, taken apart, and to ask a different question about how one becomes. I, I, I tell this little story in, in After Whiteness, it's about um, a young man um, who at a certain point in my journey as a professor, this young man came to, to see me. He was tall, handsome, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, the, the son and the grandson of a of, of priest. And there was, um, I mean, of, of, of uh, uh, professors and ministers and, and, you know, his ancestors were, were, were you know, wood barons or some kind of baron. But he, he came from uh, incredible affluence. And he looked apart. And he said to me, Dr. Jennings, I love my, I love my dad. I love my granddad. I love my uncles. I love all the men in my life. But I don't want to be them. Can you help me not be them? Because he knew that the lines were set for him to become them. All expected that. All wanted that. And he had been formed to want it. And he now saw that the, the fact that he wanted it, that he was already deeply inside those aspirations, those aspirations were working themselves in him, were at war with the aspiration to be a disciple of Jesus with these others. And so at the time, I didn't have a great answer for him. Later on, I got a better answer. And that was he needed a different set of friends. He needed a different set of community. He needed to open himself to those who weren't angling to become him <laughs> and to seek a different becoming. That's the, that's the challenge we're facing. Because as you know, for so many people, um, the, the reality of education, especially theological education, is a reality of social uplift, social climbing, class mobilization. And so how do we challenge that? How do we unravel that? And how do we offer a different kind of becoming? And there we need to, we need to reconnect with the ways of becoming of so many indigenous peoples who have struggled to sustain ways of becoming that are tied to the land, tied to the realities of living in an animate and communicative world and learning to discern that one's movement of maturity is inside a heightened level of discernment, not in terms of exhibiting that self-sufficient masculinist, white masculinist form. I find it interesting, Willie, you talked about um, not having as, as good an answer at the time with that, with that tall young man. And, uh, and I, I um, find myself always struggling with the fact that, you know, how do, how do we unravel this? Because I can't find the beginning thread. I like that. If you use the web metaphor, you go, I don't know where. If you, we're looking for the site of formation, I can't find that beginning thread because it's everywhere. And I see it in a thousand different interactions every single day that are based on exchange, based on a commodifying um, interactions that really are about control and dominion in little ways. And so, you know, I sort of, you start noticing 
noticing, and I guess in that step one, maybe it may not be the site of formation, but it may be a start to, to start noticing. Um, but I, I do wonder, you know, the, the solutions that you're, you're, you're suggesting now, that the better, bigger answer is quite a substantial thing to say, what if we change our friendship groups? What if we make sure we align with some different groups? What if we actually lean in and listen to Indigenous people and see if we can change the way we model our world, you know, um, and by by listening to them? And I love you've got an Acts commentary, which I just love. And if there's any um, people who preach or teach and uh, uh, haven't got this book, I think it's one of the best commentaries I've come across. The, um, and you talk there about... Um, looking at the basic building blocks of society too you've got this idea of you know really interrogating the family the couple and the way we live and you've said at the end of one of your lectures about looking at our even our land and the space you know selling how do we live differently selling our houses now this is really big stuff but um i i find it um really exciting because i actually when the more you look at how enmeshed we are the more you realize that small answers are not going to fit this right Right. I think that's exactly right. We have to go, as we say, go all the way to the ground. We have to go all the way to the ground and start to think about not only how we live, but where we live. And we have to, we have to start asking ourselves some basic fundamental questions about what does it mean to yield to the spirit of God? So you mentioned the Acts commentary. So in the, so in the book of Acts, what I always like to say to people is that when you when you read the book of Acts, one of the things you will recognize about the actual signature of the presence of the Spirit, what is it? It's that people are being asked to do things they don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so the Spirit comes, oh God, I got to do something I don't want to do. <laughs> and one of the main things the Spirit is doing is pressing people to go toward people they would prefer not to, right from the beginning of Acts 2, the Acts 1, the disciples, they wanted power. They now wanted power over people. That's what they wanted. Jesus risen from the dead. Okay, when are we going to restore the kingdom of Israel? When are we going to be on top? And Acts 2, here it is. You are being pressed by the Spirit to speak in the mother tongues, as my late colleague Lyman Sani used to say, the mother tongues of other people, the language spoken, not formally, but the language spoken when mama speaks to us in private, the, the, the intimate space. And so the, 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 the being startled by that is that they're, they're not startled that they know their language. They, they know the way we talk when we're by ourselves, when we're, this is, this is the way we talk. Where did they learn that? And this is, this is the reality. And through, so throughout the book of Acts, it's, it's being pressed to be with people that you would prefer not to, being pressed by the Spirit. And so it's that fundamental yielding that I want, I want to put on the table for people before we start talking about particular strategies and so forth. Let's talk about that fundamental yielding because I think you know we are all, I think, pneumatologically deficient. And another way to say that is that we, we have learned not to even sense the ways that we are resisting and thwarting the desire of God in the spirit. And so if we can we can find ways to attune ourselves, open ourselves up to that. And I think our indigenous siblings have a lot to teach us what it means to open ourselves to the way in which the spirit is working and pressing 
But um, sort of undermines the idea of uh, Christianity being a product that people take up to um, sort of improve themselves. The consumerist understanding of Christianity as a wonderful product that uh, add to the list of things that um, you possess and um, help you get on in the world. Um, it's about deconstruction first, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, and, the, and this, it's very difficult to imagine a Christianity that's um, a different way of understanding possession. As I, yeah. as I like to say, you know, one of the things, and this, for me, this is one of the great tragedies of um, colonial Christianity as it came to the, the new worlds, is that Christians, because of the way in which we already function in this, in, in this kind of distorted vision of who we are, Christians brought a different way of understanding possession. Yeah. For so many indigenous people the world over, they understood possession of after you think possession by. Mm. Yeah. I am possessed yeah. by. Now, it, when you read the scripture, especially when you read the Hebrew Bible, that sense of possession by is very, very present there. Yeah. That the land and the animals, they speak through us. That, But most fundamentally, we are claimed by God. We are, in a sense, to use the, the language that we are in God's hands. God, mm. God holds us. God moves through us. And we are there yeah. with the other co-creatures. That possession by then is the logic of what it means to say, I possess, I'm in possession of. Yeah. Because possession of then, you know, is is a, a lot more ephemeral at that point because, yeah, okay, you could say possession of, but you don't really, you know, your possession of really is far more you get to hold hold this as you are being held. And as we know in, in the Hebrew Bible, it, it says that the animals and the land itself, the landscape, watches you, watches over you to make sure that you understand that the way in which you possess of always recognizes that you are possessed by. But when the colonialists came, they made possession of the basis of things. And so their vision of possession was possession of. But now here's the tragedy that gets to your wonderful point you just made. That, that sense of possession doesn't start with land and animals. It goes all the way to the body. And so they presented a vision of the self that starts with self-possession. And then obviously they codified it in law, especially when it came to slavery and the enslaving of people and even to the reality of indentured servitude. It was possession of. And the way one announces a self, the way one announces independence and autonomy and self-determination and control is by means of possession. I possess myself so that you may not possess me. That is a horrible way <laughs> mm. think ourselves, but that's the way we've been taught to think ourselves. Yeah. Our First Nation... Um, here we, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and our First Nations people keep pointing out that they're not the owners of the land. The land owns them. Right. Um, they are of the land. And um, 
when we were talking to Sarah Augustine, we were talking about how even Christian formation is done as a colonialist project where we assume that everyone that walks into the church asking to explore the faith is terra nullius and we mm-hmm. uh, go about uh, occupying them with our particular form of groupthink and um, form them to be just like us and then we possess them and they they possess the faith because we've actually given it to them and we've colonised them and... Um, erased any insight of the work of the divine that they brought with them. Right. And that this, this is a part of the tragedy for us, that um, how to open ourselves to the reality of being learners. Mm. Yeah. Has been lost to us. Yeah. And I always try to remind people, it, those of us who take seriously the incarnation, take seriously that God entered fully into the reality of the human must never rob God of learning. <laughs> God yeah. learn. Yeah. God learn. And so when Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks as one who has learned and is yet learning. Mm. And we we have we've taken that from ourselves. We've taken it from we've taken Jesus' humanity. I, I often would joke with people that, you know, in the minds of many people, the way they think about Jesus is, you know, there was a little baby sitting on Mary's lap and that too. He said, Mary, you don't need to feed me anymore. And you don't, don't tell me about that. <laughs> I already understand. I, yeah. I'm, I'm gone. I, I'm, don't tell me any stories. I'm good. I have my ABCs. We're good. We're good. <laughs> but but if, if, we, if we leave, leave the full humanity of Jesus, then Guess yeah. what? Mary taught Jesus. Yeah. And so did the Syrophoenician woman, which is one of the most powerful stories in the Gospels of, you know, of her telling him that the dogs get the crumbs and, you know. Yes. If, if we understood this as a reality of Jesus learning, then we can take seriously yeah. those, those passages which talk about Jesus being in shock and awe, to use our translation, which is exactly right. He yeah. is shocked and in awe. That Gentiles believe. Oh my God. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we like, yes, of course you would believe. Why? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no. I knew you were going to say that. Yes, right. Is that, yes. Is that a wink wink? Is that a wink wink? <laughs> he actually was in shock and awe. Yeah. But, but this is, I think this is crucial for us. So, how do we articulate not the life of faith we're offering to people? Yeah. But the life of faith we're performing with people. With yeah, that shows a desire to learn and to grow, yeah, and to join. That, that that's you know, that's the key, right? That's the key is a a vision of Christian faith that captures the trajectories there we see in the Book of Acts, right? So as I like to say, so you take that Acts ten passage, God comes to Peter at the height of his hunger. While he's waiting for something to eat, and that's when the sheet, or the, there's there's a new translation of um, the New Testament. I don't know if, if it's reached you folks. It's called the First Nations version. Oh wow! It's a great it's a great translation, and they translate the sheet as the soft blanket. 
Love it. <laughs> the soft blanket that just sits from heaven with 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 food with creatures that may be eaten is <laughs> the way it's translated. Soft blanket. I love that. But what what's amazing about that story, and I you know I mentioned this in the commentary that it's no accident that God that God lowers a sheep at the height of P- Peter's hunger, because he's trying to change his desire for what he would desire. And it's at, at the sight of the change of his desire to desire that which he had been both theologically and culturally, if you will, habituated to go, ugh, to know God said, no, I want you to want that. And what is that? Us. <laughs> that's us. That's where, that's, that's where we enter at God's, God's trying to transform desire. That's where we enter. And if, if we carried forward that legacy that we are at the site of the transformation of desire. That's where we are. And that, that's what it means to then speak of the Christian expansion. The Christian expansion is not the takeover. It's the expansion of desire. We desire you. You who can't imagine why we would desire, but we desire you. Mm. And we want you to desire us. There is a profound eroticism right there, right there at the very beginning of what's early called in so many commentaries and so many Gentile inclusion. I mean, that's about the worst way to put this, Gentile inclusion. I mean, there's so much happening there. Gentiles being included. There is is God exposing a, a profound erotic desire. I want you to... Eat these things that you think are nasty. Mm, eat them and enjoy yeah. them. And huh. then and so at the end of Acts 10, what do we find? We find them staying together and having a meal. And we know all the significance of that eating together. Because then in Acts 11, the disciples of Jesus are furious. That's what it says. They are, they are pissed, as we've seen right? <laughs> But they are oh, they are profoundly upset because the first question, why did you eat with them? Mm. We were we understand ourselves as a renewal movement within Israel, a renewal movement that that strengthens our deep ritual bonds, and you just screwed everything up by eating with Gentiles. And Peter's response. I don't want to do that. <laughs> God made me. Uh, no, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> I love that response. Like, I was doing the right thing. I'm fucked. I don't want to do it. God made me do it. <laughs> okay, Peter, thanks. <laughs> just, to, just to pick up on this thread of learning, um, I want to, I don't know, bring, bring it back to theological education. Um, so that's, that's kind of my role that I do for the church here in Brisbane is uh, I work at the theological college mm. and we're at a really interesting moment here in this particular theological college. We're undergoing a lot of change. Um, we've got a new leadership change coming into the college. Um, and given the, given the particularities of how theological education works here in Australia, we're in the process of switching our university affiliation um, so, which basically means that we have to rewrite our curriculum. Um, so we're, we're undergoing a lot of uh, significant change. So I, I guess I just have a question for you, Willie, is, is for 
a theological, a place of theological education like the one I'm in here, small, under-resourced, just a handful of faculty, but we've got this moment to open up something different, a moment to shift our curriculum, a moment to pause and reconsider who we might be moving into the future. I wonder what questions you think we should be asking ourselves in this moment of transition, change, possible opening up something, you know, kind of open, open horizon. What, would, what questions would you have us ask? I think the crucial questions are the ones that I think every institution ought to ask, especially in this moment. So what is it that we want the people who move through our learning experience, our educational experience? What is it that we want them to be able to do in the world? What, 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 what is it that we want them to signal fundamentally as the signature, if you will, of having gone through this time of, of education, reflection, community, what, what, what are they going to be able to do? What, what will they want to do? What will they desire to do? And that, that's, those are the most difficult questions, but the most important questions because it moves everybody out of silo thinking you know, it's like a, a band. What do we want the band to sound like? Not, not, not how, how do we want the bass player to play or how do we want the drum? What do, what's the sound of the band that we're going after? And that means we, we, we lean toward, I mean, the language we always throw out is interdisciplinary, you know, boundary breaking, blah, 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 blah. Great language. But the reality of it is, is who must we be together? That's key. Who must we be together in order to create the conditions for those who would come through this whole process to be in the world in the ways that we would love to see? And that is a challenging thing to do. And I think it requires faculty, and I tell people this all the time, the two things that most theological faculties don't touch and this is also true for churches, but the two things that most theological faculties don't touch is their collective wisdom and their collective creativity. But in order to touch your collective wisdom and your collective creativity, you have to want to touch each other. Yes. Yeah. And that's for people trained in Western forms of doctoral formation, everything trains you away from that. <laughs> Everything trains you away from that. <laughs> and so to get people that, who have been trained this way, to, okay, completely turn this way. I don't want to do that. No, please, you have to turn. That is the challenge. So, and what that means is that the, the very, before we start talking about curriculum and all that stuff, we have to put on the table the, evaluative process mm -hmm. of, of how we evaluate one another, yep. how we evaluate the work we do individually and together, and how we then establish the system of rewards and emotions and life together based on a, a reconfiguration of evaluation. 
And that, listen, Peter, that is, <laughs> that's where the fight is. Yeah. Fight yeah. it. But here, here's the thing about it. Um, we're coming to the point now where I think there are more people are realizing this is not just about this is not just about in terms of kind of what do we want to do as an institution, but who do we want to be? How do we want to exhibit thriving life? And I'm so glad to hear many institutions now saying that if if our school doesn't give witness in terms of the the faculty and the staff, how they interact, how they look. If they don't give witness to thriving life, thriving life together, then it's going to undermine what everything we're doing with these students. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Churches too, you know, like this is not yeah, the same thing with churches. If we're not giving witness to thriving life together, yes, I don't care how beautifully the sermon is executed with how precise the exegesis and deep the theological insight, but if it's not giving witness to thriving life together, people are going to be like, oh, that was great. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, a, there's, a pub, there's a pub down the street I feel a whole lot more connected to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Indeed, because it's a hyper-evaluation. You know, I, you go out in social events and I can sometimes sense in some, not all, but some other environments outside the church, you can feel that that dropping away of that hyper-evaluation and you realise mm -hmm. that that's become so much a part of the way we do things, not just in theological colleges. It may be more extreme, perhaps, because it's actually, un you, you, you are evaluating as part of what you do. But the, you know, in churches, we have, we're searching for this perfect expression. Part of that anxiety about shrinking churches is driving this as well. We're searching for the perfect expression of the new church. And people are falling in love with some idea of the church or some mm. idea of community and they're going hard at it. And they forget that, that in the meantime, they hurt other people in trying to push for their own particular experience expression of of perfect church or perfect community and that yet at the heart of things is that transformation of desire i i love that because it that we desire you and we want you to desire us that's got to be at the heart yeah i, th I think you're exactly right it, it, if if it's possible to invite people away from the what i call this quest for the finished man that's mm -hmm. such a gift and th that for us in the in especially trained in the trajectories of Western education, that quest for the for the finished man is so pro. It doesn't matter one, whether one considers oneself politically progressive, radical, conservative. Everybody is caught up in that quest. Mm -hmm. I've got to show my finish mm -hmm. that I know it. I know it properly. I know it right. I know it deeply. I I can you know I can I, I'm efficient. I can pull it off. And that quest itself mm. undermines yeah. which precisely we're going after. Yeah, and, and do you know what the funny thing that I've noticed, um, Willie, I do some work in a, in a high school here in Southeast Queensland, and what I notice is uh, how instinctively humans don't want to do, go on that quest. They don't want to go on the quest for the, 
the finished man that they're sort of forced into it. It's it's so interesting how often students, not often, almost universally, students articulate their most meaningful experiences at, at high school even as being mm-hmm. on the sporting field in a team or being in a music ensemble or having lunch with their friends. It's never academic individual pursuit. Yes. It's never my mm. own success that I was pursuing to compete against all of you. It's almost like we're all being, you know, pushed into that that sort of sausage making machine, and nobody's been enjoying it at any stage of the process from from the earliest, you know, time where you're taught that you're competing with your friends, to you know the very very end of the process where you've won or you've lost. Nobody wins and nobody's enjoying it. Right. We we, we are inside as I like to say we're inside someone else's dream. We're inside the master's dream, and his desire to. He's trying to answer a question for us without us, which is to say, who must my children become to handle the power I have? Who must my children become in order to build my legacy better? And that answer is the finished man. And so, and many of us, you know, and, I, I've, and I'm sure you have to, I've been with many people who, when they stop to think about it, they're not sure who who they're trying to please. Yeah. <laughs> who am I trying to wait a minute? Who am I trying to please with all this? Yeah, yeah. I'm not pleasing myself. <laughs> well, what am I doing? So, and and that's that's the tragedy of it because you know, at in that regard, we we have yet to hear that Jesus is not the finished man. He's not the finished man, and in fact. Any idea that he would have been the finished man died on the cross. Mm. That, that, there's that profound disappointment that who we thought he was yeah. going to be, he's not. Yeah, and it's and it makes me think of um, your line or trope really that runs through after whiteness about it's not just it's it's always Jesus and the crowd. So it's it's not Jesus as some you know, individual who's you know, the finished man. It's, it's right. Jesus mixed up with the crowd. Right. And, that, right. and that's, that's the right. struggle. How do we find our way in right. the crowd? Yeah. That's key. That's key. And that's, that's the, that's the image I want people to walk around with. I mean, I want, I want everyone who's concerned about any kind of education, whether it's in the church or schools, mm-hmm. you know, I want them to have that image of Jesus and that crowd. That was the point. Mm-hmm. That was the point. That wasn't a means to an end. That was the point. Mm-hmm. They gather that crowd, and that crowd is unruly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that crowd is unruly, and it's in that crowd yep. that God is smiling. Ah, that's wow. the, the crowd understands desire. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know, and that the crowd that, that desire I desire you, and and we want you to desire us. That's that's the dynamic that is going on in the in the crowd, and Jesus with. Um, which is the piece that we missed. Yeah, mm. absolutely. It's so interesting to me to, to, you know, all of your work, Willie, which basically I, I think anyone who picks up a, a Willie Jennings book, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, by the end of the book, you you will be reevaluating everything you've ever wanted or desired, um, mm. you know, which which I think is an incredibly healthy thing to do because even those of us who, who've been able to, 
And I think this is a, a very much a rising awareness around the world over the last um, couple of decades to see that the Western um, building project is a deformed thing, you know, down to its very core. But even then, there is still this sense of, um, and I know we've chatted about this a little bit on our, on our podcast recently, there is still this sense that, well, there's nothing we can really do about it. So the best life I can really get for myself is is just the best life possible in this deformed building project. I can just find the, you know, the, my perfect partner, my perfect house, my perfect job. And I know the system's broken. I know it's not going to be great, but at least I'll have a little bit of, you know, good for me. And so we continue to desire that because I suppose to stop playing the game doesn't mean that you leave the game. It means you lose the game. Um, you know, you don't, it's not as though there's another, there's another thing to left of stage where for those who've decided to stop playing the deformed building project, they can just jump over here. It does seem if you stop playing, you lose the game. So, so how do you, when the, I guess when the realities are that stark, you know, when, when, when the decision to, to not, or to try to not stand in the Western building project and desire different things instead might lead to you know not having a safe place to live not having financial security whatever when we're talking about really stark realities for people how do we even begin those conversations well this is you 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 want to take it apart so what i always say to people is that um i'm not asking you to do everything i'm asked the first thing i'm just asking you to do is to say tell me where does it hurt that's that's i just want to start there let's just start where does it hurt and if I can, if I can start where it hurts, and I can, okay, it hurts there. And so, I'm, a question for you then: is since you said it hurts there, do you want to ignore it, or do you want to begin to address it? And most people say, well, I, I don't want to ignore it anymore because I've been ignoring it for years. Great, great. <laughs> so let's start to unravel it. So the unraveling means that what we're actually doing is putting our hands on the energy that is being used to sustain the hurt. And we're we wanna redirect the energy so that it's no longer being used to sustain a wound and deepen a wound. And so, the, 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 the building project shows a building project going in the right, wrong direction, but how might we turn it toward the right direction? So I want you to think about dwelling and where you live, but I want you to start to ask a different set of questions about the quality and character of where you live. I don't want you to, I don't want you to go, you know, throw your house away and go, you know, walk away from your house. But I, I want you to start to think about a, what does it mean to be there? A different way of thinking about it. And let's, let's identify where it hurts. Where does it hurt? How does it hurt? And here's the thing that, that I think is so important though. The, the building project requires that we learn to internalize thorns. We learn to accept things that hurt us. When we turn around to our children and our loved ones and then say, you too, you too must accept this. The tragedy is that there is no redemption in any of that. 
we have been redeemed. And we have to find a way to articulate those words at the site of the wounds. And that, that's, that's where we begin. So, and of course, the, the operative word and everything I just said is we. <laughs> mm. we. So I, I used to tell people this all the time. So what I want for any church is that if you have young couples, <laughs> gay or straight, if you have young couples, and they're ready, they're ready to get their first house. And what I want you to do is before they go out and start looking for the suburbs of delight, I want you to uh, pull them together and say, all right, as a matter of prayer, I want us to think together and pray about it together. Where should you live? Where ought you live as a part of your discipleship? I'm not, not, not trying to control. I just want to, to invite you to, to pray together about the where and the how you're going to live. And then I want that to spread to the whole church inside of a huge question. Why are we here? You mean in the world? Nope. <laughs> you mean in the city? Nope. Why, are, why is this church building here? Why is it here? Well, we got a good deal on the land. Okay, okay, we, we got that. But I'm asking a deeper theological question. Why are we here? And where are you in relationship to why we are here? Well, I just live over there, uh, but I want, I want to bring all that now inside of a theological interrogation, a matter of spiritual discernment. What is God saying to us about this? Now, are you saying we all need to go sell our houses? Okay, we're going to slow down, slow down, pump the brakes, slow down. I'm, not, I'm just asking us to enter into a process of discernment. And then guess what? If we enter into that process of discernment, we come back to that earlier question. Tell me where it hurts. Ah, now we are at the basis of thinking desire because God desires that it not hurt. That's where I would want to start with. And in that regard, what I'm saying is that nothing Nothing is permanent. I mean, this, this is, comes back to the fundamental reality of the, in terms of our faith. We believe that all that is was created out of nothing, which means nothing is eternal. Nothing is permanent except God. So that the very things that are presented to us as this has to be this way, we know that we are inside the profound contingency of creation. Nothing has to be the way it is. Nothing is permanent. Nothing is immovable. Nothing is um, absolutely set in stone that cannot be moved. Everything can change. And in fact, we know that the way things are is not because they're solid. It's because energy is being pressed to sustain them in that way. And so that's where we want to bring people to that reality, that we believe in the eternality and permanence reality of God. And that is all. <laughs> I, I'm just so um, struck by that that question about how, how where should where could you live where could, where should you live and how is that in relation to us and how in most churches of the world I think if a 
a minister asked that question, there'd be a number of people in the church who'd think that's overstepping the bounds. You know, that's not that's not of the purview of the church. We come here to worship on a Sunday and what we do in our private lives is entirely unrelated to that. And the life we live over here is entirely unrelated to that. But um, but this idea of, of no, it isn't, that's the problem. This idea of the private enclosure is the deformed building project is the problem. And I know when we, we had um we had lunch a couple of weeks ago, the, the four of us, Willie, um, in advance of this conversation with you. And um and Peter Cat, you said something really interesting about uh where is the where are the experiments in the church? Where is the church throwing ideas out there of what would it look if three families lived together or or you know, what what could totally different experiments of living together be? Yeah, just trying something um, safe to fail experiments. So instead of everybody in a congregation um, um, selling their houses, um, you know, some people just deciding to try something different and seeing where it goes and be, be uh, yeah. I think sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the juggernaut that is the Western experiment and the idea of the economy, which has ceased to be mm-hmm. about us and it's this sort of monster, um, mm-hmm. that we feel like we are powerless. And I think if we start small, we can find there's a lot of power um, to change, just as as was the case in the early church. Um, and, you know, Margaret, Mead, Margaret Mead's idea that it's, it's only small groups of people that change things. It's uh, only ever has been. So... Let's look for some safe-to-fail small experiment and give it a go. Yeah, I think this is an important point. And I, I always say to folks, I just want people, the, you know, the, the, the late anthropologist Keith Basso had this phrase that he said, we are geographically adrift. And um, what that means is that for so many of us, we, we don't think in relationship to the land. And I just want Christians to be at those meetings when neighborhoods are created and decided and designed. I just want Christians to be there to ask questions. Where are the sidewalks? Where are the bus routes? Where's the green spaces? Why do these houses cost this much? How, how do people move in and out? I just, I just want us to be aware of the land enough so that we sense it connected to our bodies. And that wherever the churches are, that the church is actually in the place, not on the place, in the place. And to teach Christians that we are actually in the place. We are in the land, not just moving on the land. And I I would love for churches and especially people who are deeply concerned about the shape of living, to ask those who shape living to function with the moral compass. That's real estate, developers, um, engineers, civil engineers, you know, architects. I want Christians to say, you have a moral responsibility with us to think about the shape of living. That's what, that's what I, want for. I, I want them to do that work, to be at those meetings when they happen, to be in front of those mayors and those other city officials, however they're described there in your context, that to be in those rooms when those, those fundamental decisions are made about 
you know, zoning. This is this is going to be a business district. This is going to be a residential district. This is going to be okay. Wait, who? What's the moral compass we're using to decide this? And where are the voices of the people, the voices of the land, the voices of the animals, the voices of the tree? How are we attuned to the place? And what we build and what we plant, what we tear it up and what we plate down, what's what's involved? That I would love for us to start there, to, to do that. Now, of course, I don't know if it's if it's different there. Here, if you do that, you get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but, oh, as, yeah. uh, but as we had a we had a wonderful late congressman who many of you might have heard of, John Lewis. He died recently. He used to say that this is this is good trouble. This is the kind of good trouble you want to get into by asking those kinds of questions. And I think we need to be involved, and we also need to be taking leading in some way i think so often the church is just followed and aligned aligned with the building project we actually if we and it will be just small but i think we need to be leading and and imagining something different into being as well in a small way so that we can point to it and say this is what we're talking about everyone you know it's this if we're going to look at where does it hurt for people and in parish churches and in theological colleges we're aware of that we're aware of so many different types of hurts that are created with people um, who are lonely and isolated with people who are uh, in various ways of, of, of violence done against them without the protection and support of others and we're aware of and the the, the sheer weight of the financial and the economic pressures um, and the cost of housing. So if we're aware of this, we also need we need to engage with those spaces with the developers, but we also if we could find a way to have that to say, um, look at this, this is we're having a go. This is what um, that this is what transforming desire looks like in mm-hmm. a lived setting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And 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 all ba- boil down to the base metric of of what you said earlier, Willie, of is this um, abundant life together? Uh, you know, it's, I, I sometimes I've joked on the podcast before that I'm sometimes bemused by um, by how often we miss the fact that this was meant to be good news, um, because it, you know, with that that phrase "good news" is used a lot. You know, this is the good news, but often it isn't really good news. Right. It's it's right. um, you know, I right. think it is John Philip Newell who who said that it's uh, when we tell people they're bad, it's not only not good news, it's not even news. But I think sometimes um, the the faith systems of the world haven't been news. They have just been rehashing the same old thing that people are getting everywhere else in their life. Whereas this this transformative, radical breakthrough idea that there is good news, there is a different way to live together. I mean, it's just yeah. at the core, it's it's phenomenally exciting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what we have to do is, is create a chorus. It's... Yeah. I'm happy to sing in that chorus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a beautiful way to, to wrap up the conversation for today. Look, the, the book uh, is After Whiteness and Education and Belonging. It's well worth um, going and getting a copy of. Um, but as I said, warning, you might reevaluate everything in your life um, mm-hmm. in a good way, in a healthy way, in a way that will lead uh, to abundant life. Dr. Willie James Jennings, thank you so much for making time to, to chat with us today. My pleasure. My pleasure.